Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, March is Florida Archaeology Month, and we'll explore this year's theme, Innovators of the Archaic. The archaic period in Florida is really a time where humans had to deal with some rapid environmental change, and that's something I think that we can all um, sort of imagine what that might be like in the very near future for us. We'll discuss Apache Indians held captive at Fort Marion. After the Civil War, we had decades of um, what we call the Western Indian Wars or the Plains Wars, where the U.S. government was um, either forcing the removal or um, uh, trying to form large reservations for a number of the uh, large uh, Native American tribes that were living in the Western territories. And we'll talk with author Gary Monroe about the highwaymen artists. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Toe bone connected to the foot bone, foot bone connected to the ankle bone, ankle bone connected to the leg bone, leg bone connected to the knee bone, knee bone connected to the thigh bone. have lived in Florida for more than 10,000 years. March is Florida Archaeology Month and the 2015 theme is Innovators of the Archaic. The Archaic period began about 9,500 years ago and continued until about 3,000 years ago. Florida is rich with Archaic period archaeological sites, stone tools, pottery with distinctive regional styles, and prehistoric architectural foundations called shell middens have been discovered throughout the state. More than 100 dugout canoes, some dating to 5,000 years ago, have been excavated at Noonan's Lake in Alachua County. One of the most important archaic period archaeological excavations in the world happened in Brevard County. In 1982, as construction began on the Windover Farms neighborhood in Titusville, ancient human remains were uncovered. Archaeologists from Florida State University were called in to investigate. Bruce Piatek, director of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute and the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, was one of the first archaeologists to see the Windover remains. Dr. Glenn Dorn, who was the principal investigator at the time, was my major professor, and I was a graduate student at FSU. And so I, he asked if I wanted to tag along on this little adventure that he and Dr. Daly, the physical anthropologist at Florida State University, were going on, and I said, sure. Uh, so we piled into the car and drove all the way over here and got here, and um, you know, it was a nice, long, five-hour boring trip. 
but we arrived and we kind of didn't know what we were going to encounter. And we, we got out of the vehicle and there were mounds of this kind of purplish brown gelatin almost looking like material piled all over and fella pulled up in a pickup truck and put down the bed of his uh, on his on his truck gate and set out three five gallon uh, plastic buckets and reaches inside and pulls out a human skull so he hands one to Dr. Daly and he looks at it and hands it to Dr. Dorn and Dr. Dorn hands it back to Dr. Daly and in the course of this they hear something flopping around inside the skull. So they flip it over in the frame magnum, the large hole where the spinal cord enters into the brain. Uh, Dr. Daly kind of takes whatever that mass is and flops it over towards the hole and sticks his pocket knife in there and scoops out a little bit to kind of see what it is. So he smells it and he looks at it and he rubs it between his fingers. He may have even tasted it, uh, but I'm not positive on that fact. Uh, and then he looks at, at, at Glenn Doran and says, no, it couldn't be, and gave it back to the gentleman. And then we looked at the rest of the other five skulls that were there and proceeded to kind of do some initial investigation of, of what was there at Wendover. Um, and uh, so we all merrily went back to Tallahassee, and it wasn't for quite a long time thereafter until uh, we found out that, in fact, it really was what Dr. Daly thought it couldn't be. It was human brain material inside the crania. Nearly 200 complete sets of human remains were discovered at the Windover site that were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old. Ninety-one of the skulls contained intact brain matter, the bodies were ritualistically buried in the same position, wrapped in some of the oldest woven cloth ever found. The anaerobic environment of the Pond Cemetery allowed the ancient human remains and artifacts to be amazingly well-preserved. Bruce Piatek, one of the first archaeologists to see the Windover remains, now runs the Brevard Museum in Cocoa, where the story of the Windover people is told. One of the things that's on this month's archaeological poster is the Windover site, uh, and we are the one place in the state where you can come and learn about uh, this almost miraculous uh, archaeological site that was discovered during a construction project. Uh, Dr. Glenn Doran came down and excavated that back in the early 80s, uh, and what was amazing about it is the preservation and the story and the information we learned that tremendously expanded our understanding of how sophisticated people in Florida were, both socially and technologically, over 7,000 years ago. Uh, and the site uh, had tremendous preservation because it was a series of uh, very many burials over a long period of time. Uh, that indicated some of the religious belief systems of the archaic people and sort of that cultural sophistication where they were burying their dead in this pond. And so uh, because of that, it created an anaerobic or non-oxygenated environment, uh, and that led to preservation of uh, fabric materials. We never knew that these people were weaving at that period of time, and the sophistication and the skills that went into that uh, we learned a lot more about their religious belief systems, their recognition of the need to treat people in a humane way. You know, it was at one time that we kind of felt like if you couldn't keep up with the group, you got left behind. Well, that wasn't at all the case. Wendover showed us that even people with spina bifida uh, or who were so old that they couldn't chew their food were cared for and taken care of in this society. So um, we've got a tremendous exhibit on Wendover. It's really the only place to come and learn about the Windover site. Uh, and as part of the Archaeological Institute's efforts and also the Florida Historical Society, we're looking towards uh, reworking that exhibit and uh, refreshing it so that it provides more educational opportunities. But it's a tremendous exhibit and really a great place to come out and learn something. 
The Brevard Museum is holding activities for Florida Archaeology Month, including public lectures from Sarah Miller of the Florida Public Archaeology Network and Annette Snap from the Atatiki Seminole Museum. A bus will depart from the museum on Wednesday, March 25th, for a trip to St. Augustine to see the new government house exhibit, the Castillo de San Marcos, and an active archaeological excavation. Lunch will be at the Columbia Restaurant. Through the Institute, we're going to be sponsoring a day trip up to St. Augustine. It's kind of the archaeologist tour of uh, the historic city, and it's the 450th anniversary of the founding of St. Augustine. So this is a really exciting time up there. We're going to be visiting in the fort, and one of the things, if you come along on the tour, you'll learn how broken pieces of Spanish olive jar actually made it possible for the fort to be constructed and stay together. And so we'll be showing you uh, how that worked in the construction process of the fort and learning a lot more about uh, the history and archaeology of St. Augustine. Uh, on the way up, we'll have some discussions and show some images about St. Augustine and some of the archaeological information that we have. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting, again, about the fort is that uh, many people don't know that it was stuccoed over and painted white and red. Uh, so I've got some images to show you what the fort would have looked like uh, in its original condition. Uh, I think there would be a, a general outcry in the community if we push to uh, repaint it. Um, but that's what it originally looked like. We'll also be visiting the uh, new exhibit uh, in St. Augustine at the Government House, which will give you a good overview of the history and archaeology of St. Augustine and a lot of the work that's been done there over many years. And then we're going to visit an actual ongoing archaeological excavation uh, and visit with Carl Halbert, the St. Augustine city archaeologist. So it'll be a full day, a uh, little bit of walking, great lunch at the Columbia Restaurant, uh, but you'll learn a lot and have a good time. So we hope everybody will come out and join us for that. A free Archaeology Day is being held on the Brevard Museum grounds as part of Florida Archaeology Month. Hands-on activities for people of all ages will be presented by FHSAI and FPAN. Kevin Gadusco is Public Archaeology Coordinator for FPAN. It's really an opportunity to get out and, and sort of uh, work with the technology that these native peoples of Florida would have used. So we'll have everything from atlatls. An atlatl is a throwing stick that was utilized by the peoples of Florida to hunt. It was used much longer than bows and arrows were. Bows and arrows are relatively recent. We're going to have an opportunity for people to learn about prehistoric pottery through actually making some of their own the way native peoples did. They'll sort of also look at native plant technology through the, the types of seeds and the types of plants that they would have grown. And uh, we're also switching it up a little bit, and we'll have a little bit of underwater archaeology as well. We've got uh, the Maple Leaf Shipwreck, which is a Civil War-era shipwreck up north of Jacksonville that was investigated several years ago. And so we've got a sort of big tarp set up so you can see uh, how underwater archaeologists excavated that site and what they learned from it. There are a wide variety of Florida Archaeology Month activities taking place around the state presented by various museums and local archaeological organizations. The theme for this year's Florida Archaeology Month is Innovators of the Archaic, and Kevin Gadusco says that era has some important lessons for modern society. The archaic period in Florida is really a time where humans had to deal with some rapid environmental change, and that's something I think that we can all um, sort of imagine what that might be like in the very near future for us. The difference is now we've got a lot more people, we're not nearly as flexible. So sort of looking at how these people lived in these areas where sea levels were rising. Um, the University of Florida is conducting research in the Gulf 
examining some of these shell rings or uh, old mound sites that are that are very quickly eroding into the ocean. Uh, Mercyhurst College is, has done underwater archaeology up in that area, looking at Paleo-Indian sites, uh, which would have been above the ocean uh, at the time when people first came into Florida. Um, there's a lot more research going on up and down the St. John's, which is a very important, many, many important habitation sites during the archaic period. So there's a lot of really exciting things going on, and this is an opportunity to get out and learn more about what's happening. The Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute, located at the Brevard Museum, is also celebrating its first anniversary this month. Over the past year, FHSAI has published the book Searching Sand and Surf, The Origins of Archaeology in Florida, hosted an ongoing series of free public lectures, and actively participated in archaeological research around the state. Director Bruce Piatek. There's been a long history with the Florida Historical Society being involved in archaeology and really kind of being one of the organizations that got statewide archaeology recognized in the field of archaeology appreciated by the state of Florida with you know, some of the early pioneers in Florida archaeology really being affiliated with the society. So it was a natural kind of progression that, to begin the, the Archaeological Institute. And one of the interesting things that's happened this year is the Institute now is housed at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. So we have a permanent home with facilities, uh, which was all part of the historical societies uh, stepping in and picking up the uh, the mantle of running the Brevard Museum uh, and looking to make it a uh, more statewide significant institution. So I'm excited about the opportunities to start developing some additional programming uh, at the museum and to bring more archaeology into the museum and, and give the Archaeological Institute uh, more of a visible face for visitors in our community. Bruce Piatek says that Florida Archaeology Month is a great opportunity to bring attention to the need to protect our state's diminishing archaeological resources. We need to begin thinking about preserving and also excavating sites that are going to be threatened by sea level increase. So this whole climate change issue that Kevin touched on earlier is really affecting uh, much of the coastal area and we're losing lots of archaeological sites. And if we don't get in and do something about recovering some of that information, it'll be lost forever because uh, you can't bring those sites back once they're disturbed or destroyed through tidal action or erosion. Um, but there's a lot of exciting archaeology going on. I think uh, the effort to try to get the public more aware of archaeology is a significant improvement. Uh, to get people more aware and more supporting of the effort to save, preserve, and, and to understand more of that history and prehistory of our state. A list of Florida Archaeology Month activities taking place around the state can be found online at flarcmonth.org.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. The Florida Historical Society is holding their 2015 annual meeting and symposium in St. Augustine, May 22nd through 24th at the World Golf Resort Village. This year's theme is Subjects, Citizens, and Civil Rights, 450 Years of Florida History. The event features more than 90 presentations and roundtable discussions on a wide variety of Florida history topics, private tours of historic sites, an awards luncheon, and much more. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, after the Seminole Indian Wars were long over and the undefeated Seminoles were living in the Everglades, Apache Indians were held captive in Florida. Yeah, that's right. And this is a little-known chapter in Florida's history. But in the uh, mid-1800s, there was a small group of uh, Apache Indians, uh, specifically of the Chiricahua uh, Band of Apaches, who were uh, most famously led by the Chief Geronimo, uh, were imprisoned in uh, two Florida bastions. One was in Fort Marion in St. Augustine, and the other was Fort Pickens in Pensacola. Um, and just to give a little background, you mentioned the Seminole War. So uh, by the late 1850s, the Seminole Wars, or the Florida Wars, as they were referred to, were essentially over. Uh, but after the Civil War, we had decades of um, what we call the Western Indian Wars, or the Plains Wars, where the U.S. government was um, either forcing the removal or um, uh, trying to uh, form large reservations for a number of the uh, large uh, Native American tribes that were living in the Western territories, including the Apache Indians who were in what is now present-day Arizona and also uh, present-day Mexico. They lived uh, right along that, that southwest border. Uh, well, in the mid-1880s, 1886 to 1887, uh, there were a number of efforts uh, made by the federal government to capture the last of these uh, bands of, of Apache Indians who were routinely crossing the Mexican border uh, and raiding really indiscriminately with a lot of uh, against a lot of Mexican uh, farmers, but also uh, U.S. settlers along the border region. Uh, in 1886, Geronimo and his small band of uh, of warriors were eventually, uh, they weren't captured. In fact, they actually surrendered to uh, the U.S. forces, and they were promised that they would be uh, sent together with their families to Florida, where they would be temporarily imprisoned. Well, unfortunately, uh, they were uh, separated. Uh, Geronimo and, and his male counterparts were sent to Fort Pickens in Pensacola, and his wife and children and many of the other women and children uh, who were members of his tribe uh, were sent to Fort Marion, uh, which uh, the uh, military leaders at Fort Marion were uh, only expecting 150 individuals. Well, uh, eventually they rounded up all of the Apaches who were living in these settlements, even those who were uh, uh, peaceful and weren't involved in any of the raids. Uh, they sent nearly 500 Apache Indians to Fort Marion, and they were all uh, imprisoned inside of the uh, the very small uh, the small walls of the fort. Uh, you have here an historic document that chronicles the Apache experience here at Fort Marion. 
That's right. What we're looking at is a official report that was published in 1887 by Herbert Welsh, who is a secretary for the Indian Rights Association. And he was sent to Fort Marion specifically to inspect the uh, living circumstances for the uh, Apache Indians who were living within the confines of the fort. Anyone who has visited uh, Fort Marion, which we now refer to as the Castillo de San Marcos, it's a large, uh, foreboding, coquina uh, stone fortress. But inside the fort is very small. So you can just imagine that they had 500 families in these makeshift tents who were living in very, very tight conditions uh, inside the fort for upwards of, of a year, almost a year and a half, uh, close to two years, actually. Uh, although they were allowed at some uh, points during their incarceration to travel throughout the town, uh, what Herbert Welsh uh, ultimately concludes is that their living conditions are uh, unacceptable. Uh, and he does present a few uh, recommendations to the federal government, but in his final conclusion, he, he essentially states that we have to move them out of this small fort. Uh, so by late 1887, uh, almost all of the Apache Indians Indians were uh, were uh, forced to, uh, out of, of Fort Marion uh, and were moved uh, uh, out of Fort Pickens as well, and were eventually uh, relocated to uh, to another site. Well, they were relocated to another site. What ultimately happened to these uh, Apache that were held captive in Florida? Well, unfortunately, the the story doesn't end there. Um, they were considered prisoners of war. So a number of the uh, children who were uh, taken away from their homes out west were sent to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania and were essentially uh, re-indoctrinated with, with Western ways. They were given uh, uh, clothing and they were taught English and, and Christianity and were uh, uh, taught to uh, try and, and get away from their, their traditional um, beliefs. And a number of the uh, warriors, like I said, they were reunited after leaving Fort Marion with their their families uh, uh, who were in prison in Fort Pickens and Fort Marion, respectively, they were sent to Alabama, uh, were eventually sent to Oklahoma, to Fort Sill, but again, were still considered prisoners of war. Um, and it wasn't until the early 19th century, 1913, that the few surviving members uh, of this original Apache uh, Indian group uh, were allowed to head back to what is now uh, modern-day New Mexico. Geronimo, unfortunately, uh, died while still a, a, a considered a prisoner of war at Fort Sill in 1909, so he never, never made it back to their ancestral uh, homelands. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in This is Florida Frontiers. Paintings by the highwaymen are perhaps Florida's most popular indigenous works of art. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com talks with Gary Monroe, who has written extensively about the highwaymen. You know, I think the highwaymen left the visual legacy of modern Florida. I think it's their paintings that captured um, uh, mid-century Florida with eloquence and insight and um, really are, are the only testimony we have um, done by a conglomerate of people um, without pretense that speaks so well of this time and place. And I think they deserve to be recognized um, as artists and contributors to our shared culture. 
That was Gary Monroe, a professor of photography at Daytona State College. He sat down with me to talk about the Highwaymen, who were a group of landscape artists operating on Florida's roadsides from the 1960s until the 1980s. Monroe has published six books on the Highwaymen and their contribution to Florida's cultural heritage. Here, he tells me how they got started. The Highwaymen started in about 1960 because of um, the energy of um, a young man just out of high school named Alfred Hare. In fact, in about 1958, Alfred Hare is a 10th grader taking painting lessons from the regionalist A.E. Backus in Fort Pierce, where they lived. And um, when he graduates from high school in 61, he um, sets out to be a full-time artist and to um, support himself and his family through his paintings. He was also had a magnanimous personality, and he invited others to um, learn, learn the craft of painting, which he taught them. He's the only one of the highwaymen to have had lessons. The others um, learned by trial and error under his um, guidance and energy. They became famous for painting landscapes of Florida, the mangroves, the Everglades, the ocean scenes, and even the wetlands. I asked Monroe if they were trying to depict a true image of these locations or something else. Their paintings were not quite site-specific. The, the highwaymen did not paint on location. They painted in their backyards, in their garages, etc. Um, it, 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 one can look at this in a few ways. They took inspiration from A.E. Backus, the white regionalist, and they often used similar subject matters as he painted because they knew they were marketable, but they went about painting them rather differently, rather quickly. Um, and they, they changed um, his imagery to their own imagery. Um, but no, they didn't go on location. But on the other hand, they grew up in that environment. And I've spoken to most of the artists and um, all the ones that were living when I wrote the books. And they, they pretty much said, you know, they, they knew the environment and they cared about how it looked and how it was represented. Um, you know, I, I spoke to Livingston Roberts at one time, and he said, you know, he used to drive around just to look at the grass in different times of year to see how the green would change during the seasons. So they were, they were quite aware, but the actual um, landscape itself was not necessarily um, a, a photographic uh, rendition of that um, idea. It was more of an idea than it was a photographic uh, description. Here, Gary Monroe tells me what they learned from their mentor and fellow landscaped artist, A.E. Backus, and how students like Alfred Hare built upon this very training within the Highwaymen Collective. It's the way they painted that makes them distinctive. You know, A.E. Backus uh, encouraged Alfred to paint um, his heritage, and he didn't mean to paint um, African-American themes. He meant to paint the landscape, but to paint it without the, um, I'll say, hindrance of academic training. He encouraged them to paint intuitively. And in fact, I think that the highwayman's distinction comes as colorists. Uh, they're totally free and responsive and using color um, metaphorically. You know, I've heard naysayers comment that, well, they didn't get the sunset quite right. It's not that Bloody Mary red. Well, first of all, if you grew up in Florida like I did, um, over the Everglades at certain times of the year for about two minutes, it is that Bloody Mary red. But I think more to the point, if they didn't um, achieve the exact hue, it's quite irrelevant because the, the, um, the, the colors that they did use um, just vibrate metaphorically with experiencing, for example, a Florida sunset. So I think on one hand their color is wonderful, but to me the primary um, uh, value in their painting is their fast painting. And I'm not saying they all painted 20 paintings at a time, but without doubt they painted without an underdrawing, with no grids under their oils on the boards. They didn't work from photographs or, as I said, on location. 
they simply attack their boards, painting with oil, all oil paintings, wet on wet oil, with an, with a, often with palette knives and past. It was very energetic. And I, I think it's that quickness um, that left a very suggestive kind of imagery that beckoned viewers to lend their own uh, meanings, to, 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 to lay their own narratives over these sort of stripped bare um, but thoroughly realized renditions of the Florida scene. That was Gary Monroe from Daytona State University. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers is provided by Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.